right, Bankless Nation, welcome to another State of the Nation episode. David, what are we talking about today? What's the theme? We are modeling out ultra sound money. We put out the episode with Justin Drake uh, a while ago. So now we are getting Justin Drake back onto the show to get into the granular details of what makes ultra sound money ultrasound money. There are numbers to discuss. And so we are going to discuss all of them. There are numbers to discuss. There are models to discuss. There are four different pieces to this, David. You tweeted this out pre-episode and we're going to get into all of them. 25% staking, annualized, APY. In ETH terms? In ETH terms. Uh, ETH supply, maybe it peaks at 121 million and never gets higher than 120 million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kiss, kisses million. 120 million and comes back down. Long-term ETH supply target, possibly 100 million. So that's the coming down part and mm-hmm. the potential for sell pressure to be reduced by 90%. Justin Drake has brought the models behind some of those astounding facts that I think very few people have actually looked into. I mean, the first exposure to uh, EIP-1559 and uh, to the merge, the staking merge in a comprehensive way, I feel like was was almost the, the podcast that we did with Justin on Ultrasound Money. Now that was very metaphor driven. That was very mm-hmm. high level uh, mm-hmm. to help people understand the narrative. Now this is the supporting data. This is the supporting numbers, the supporting um, financial projections behind all of this. So I'm super excited to dig into this. And David, all time high ETH, coincidence? I don't know. I think not, sir. <laughs> I think it I, knew it, this episode was coming. I, I choose to believe that as well. All right, David, uh, what's new in the community? Before we get to Justin, got to talk about badges. If you are a Bankless Premium member, pick up your badge. We've been saying it for two weeks. Definitely do it. Pick up your badge. This is the week. We're doing more raffles this week. So mm-hmm. check your email uh, for that. Email from lucas at banklesshq.com. If you have issues with that, email support at banklesshq.com. Also, David, we've got a killer episode coming up on Monday. Um, you want to just give a taste of what we're going to cover in that episode? Yeah, this this episode makes some very, very bold claims. We like to make bold claims on the Bankless podcast, but this one uh, is brand brand new. Uh, Josh Rosenthal, uh, who is probably a name that most people don't aren't familiar with, but he is a historian of Europe, European art, money, wealth, history. Uh, and we make the claim that we are on the cusp of a digital renaissance that is equal to or larger than what the Renaissance that came in the 1400s. Uh, and the connections here are in the 1400s, we invented uh, the uh, Gutenberg uh, printing press, thank you, uh, and, and also double entry bookkeeping. And in the modern day, the printing press is now the modern day internet and the modern day double entry bookkeeping is blockchain. Uh, and that actually uh, is unlocking a brand new renaissance, a crypto renaissance. And uh, he did a fantastic job just going through the history and drawing the parallels. We talk about renaissance meme culture. The meme culture actually started perhaps in the 1400s. We talked about the parallels between Martin Luther and Satoshi. Uh, and we talk about so- what, so cool, so cool. And so there, there's a, a lot of awesome through lines here. And it's actually one of already been one of my favorite episodes to come out of the Bankless yeah, pod. When we were recording that, David, I had just like goosebumps almost almost the entire time when Josh was speaking, mm-hmm. just talking about these these various parallels between the kind of the old Renaissance and this Renaissance. So be sure to check that out, Bankless Nation. As well, David, uh, Dharma is still cooking some things up. They wanted us to let you know that they have now rolled the Dharma app out. They have a direct connection to your bank account in all 50 states in the US. And David, when people ask uh, 
like me about DeFi, especially my friends who don't know much about them, I'm increasingly pointing them to start with the Dharma app because that is a great onboarding experience mm -hmm. direct from their bank account to DeFi in one tap. Uh, super cool. Anything else you want to say about Dharma? Yeah, we know retail season is coming and Dharma is probably the best place to send retail who are still looking for like that kind of TradFi uh, experience of like, you know, just good UX, but it's DeFi in the back, right? And so one tap, one tap separates you between your dollars in your bank account and ultrasound money on Ethereum. Ooh, Dharma.io guys, check that out, download the app. All right, David, I'm going to ask you the question I ask at the beginning of every state of the nation. What is the state of the nation today, sir? The state of the nation, it was going to be bullish, Ryan, but I was <laughs> chit-chatting. But we've used that. We've been but, bullish But we've before. used that before. And I was chit-chatting okay. with Justin uh, before the show, and he asked him for inspiration or ideas about what the state of the nation is. And he said, ultra bullish. Uh, and so the state <laughs> of the nation today is ultra bullish. As you can see, if you go and look at the ETH price chart and as well, what will be an ultra bullish episode uh, coming to your ears in just a moment. It was crazy, dude. I have two emails waiting for me. One is a 80 page uh, report on a why, why ether is sound money. And the other is an institutional report. Mm -hmm. These just came out today. Um, uh, an institutional report, I should say around ether as an asset, um, ultra bullish that mm -hmm. the narrative is spreading both in mm -hmm. the institutional side and the story of, of ether, the asset is, is spreading uh, among analysts too. So I've got tons yeah. of reading to do, but like, it's all ultra bullish news. And it, it all feeds back to what Justin presented uh, to us the first time around with ultrasound money, right? So much of those reports tie into the ultrasound money thesis. And so, you know, tip of the hat to Justin for really pioneering this message. And I'm absolutely stoked to bring him onto the podcast in here in a second. This is what Bankless is doing, uh, helping to develop the narrative layer, the meme layer, also helping to spread the education of what these Bankless systems are doing in the real world. We're going to get to Justin in just a minute, but before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. MetaMask is your go-to wallet for the Bankless journey. If you're going Bankless, you need MetaMask, period. Browser and mobile, get them both. This is your tool to unlock the world of DeFi. Here's my favorite part. Now you can swap tokens directly in MetaMask with a single swipe. This has gotta be the easiest way to trade Ethereum tokens. Choose a token you own, a token to exchange it with, and get your quotes. If you like what you see, you hit swap. That's it. What makes swaps so useful is what happens behind the scenes. It compares DEXs, aggregators, and market makers to find you the best price with the lowest network fees and the least slippage. This means you can swap a wider range of tokens and swaps can even automatically split up your trade to give you access to better liquidity. You don't even have to think about it. Try it out, download MetaMask for desktop or mobile now at metamask.io and start swapping. Balancer is DeFi's most powerful automated market maker. Typical AMMs just have two tokens inside of one liquidity pool, which can lead to fractured liquidity across the many pairs in DeFi. With Balancer, you can access the full power of multiple tokens inside of one single AMM, which unlocks an entirely new playing field of possibility. This makes Balancer an awesome building block for so many different use cases. Balancer pools can make asset indexes, but instead of paying fees to portfolio managers, Balancer lets you collect fees from traders who use your portfolio for liquidity. Additionally, Balancer smart pools can be programmed to have properties 
that change according to predetermined rules, such as changing the swap fee based on market conditions, or even liquidity bootstrapping pools, which can help you launch and distribute your token with day one liquidity. At Bankless, we used a liquidity bootstrapping pool to sell our BAP t-shirts to much success. Balancer V2 brings powerful new features that makes your money work even harder for you. In V2, idle tokens are capable of generating yield in DeFi without sacrificing liquidity in the pool. To top things off, Balancer is reimbursing gas costs with BAL rewards, meaning that your gas fees are reimbursed up to the cost of the transaction with the Balancer governance token. Balancer's mission is to become the primary source of liquidity in DeFi by providing the most flexible and powerful platform for asset management and decentralized exchange. Dive into the Balancer pools at pools.balancer.exchange today. Bankless Nation, welcome back. We have Justin Drake back on the podcast again. This is the third podcast video show recording that we are doing with Justin. He, of course, is an Ethereum researcher. He uh, was on two podcasts with us previously. One is on ultrasound money. The other was on cryptography, both incredibly important episodes for you to listen to and understand part of the Bankless canon. Now, Justin, how are you doing today? Doing great. We are excited about this episode and we're going to be sharing um, some models that you put together in a few minutes around some of the concepts that we really dove into uh, quite deeply in the ultrasound money podcast. We're going to put some like numbers behind some of the concepts we were talking about. But before we do, I feel like we need to uh, maybe ground the audience again in understanding um, Ether as an asset. And of course, we, we talked about um, the properties that are coming online for Ether soon, in particular EIP-1559, which adds a fee burn component, uh, and also the advent of, of full proof of stake and the shutting off of proof of work, we're calling that the merge. Those are all important concepts in the, the case for ultrasound money. But there's also another analogy that I think bankless listeners are, are familiar with that we want to want to get into here. And that is the analogy um, of ETH as a triple point asset that David and I have used so often before. And the concept of ETH as a, as a triple point asset is similar to sort of the, the states of matter that people might have learned about in, you know, in science. I don't know, uh, seventh grade science, eighth grade science, where, wherever you learned about that, <laughs> perhaps mm -hmm. lower as well. So, and the concept is that matter can be one of three states. It can be a solid, it can be a liquid and it can be a gas. And ether as an asset can also be one of three states. It can be a solid, so it can be staked uh, as a capital asset. Um, it can also be liquid, so it can be used as a money. And uh, it, it can also be used as a gas. So it can be used as a combustible uh, consumption good to purchase uh, ether block space. So that is the, the triple point asset thesis and the, the triple point asset model for money, which, which we have used. And it's kind of cool because it maps very directly to the asset superclasses. Like an asset can either be a capital asset or a money or a commodity and ether can be all three of those. You have now extended that metaphor a little bit with a new analogy, adding sort of this, this temperature dimension to Ether as a triple point asset. Can we start there? Can we dig into that? So tell us about the temperature analogy you want, wanted to share with uh, the bankless community. Yeah, so I think the, the temperature um, metaphor is, a, as you said, a, a generalization of the triple point asset. So not only can we look 
at the the individual state of let's say water that will represent uh, money ether but we can look at more fine-grained temperatures um, so you know for example money you could have money as a long-term investment which is kept cold in the fridge so that's kind of cold money or you could have hot money which is for example um, if you're a day trader or if you're an exchange processing lots of withdrawals and, and deposits in a hot wallet. Um, and I think the, 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 the reason why this, this temperature of money uh, metaphor is useful in the context of ultrasound money is that really there's, there's three big um, consequences of EIP-1559 and the merge, and they each affect a, a different state of water. So there's one key innovation that improves the kind of liquid money, as it were. There's one which improves the characteristics of the, the solid money and one that improves the characteristics of, uh, of gas money. And one of the interesting things, I guess, is that, as you say, Ethereum is this, this unique asset. It's a triple point asset in the sense that in addition to being this 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 uh, money in this narrow band, you know, between zero degrees Celsius and 100 degrees Celsius, it's capable of breaking boundaries which were not previously broken. So it can break down the the, the zero degree and, and kind of freeze itself, but it can also break down the 100 degree kind of threshold and and, and vaporize. Uh, so that you know that's the analogy of of um, having gas and literally vaporizing it just like you would vaporize gasoline when, when you consume it. it it leaves the system uh, into the ether um, so yeah um, looking forward to kind of explain what are these these three key changes to the to the cash flows right so in the previous episode we had the energy metaphor right we had energy in the form of electric energy um, going through the various components and the reason why i, I chose the electricity metaphor is because I wanted to focus on the components, right? There was these three components. There was the battery, there was the engine, and there was the solar panel. But here, I really want to focus on, on the asset and on the cash flows. And as you said, I think this, this episode is all about um, modeling the cash flows and understanding how big they are and, and, and how they circulate and what are the consequences maybe for total supply, what are the consequences in terms of cell pressure, et cetera, et cetera. So Justin, let's let's hash out this uh, this temperature metaphor just a, a little bit more. So we have um, ether as a capital asset, we have ether as a store of value, and we have ether as a transformable consumable asset. Uh, what? How do these map on to the three phases of of uh, matter? Right. So the maybe the easiest one to understand is the the, the solid state. Right. So mm -hmm. when you have ether and you you lock it you're essentially freezing it because you're really reducing the the velocity of money you're putting it in in, in deep freeze and one one great example of this is, is staking in the context of the beacon chain right it um when you want to unstake there's a, a defrosting period if you will a thawing um, period right a thawing period exactly thank you um and you know we're also seeing this in the context of, of DeFi, where right where you have the notion of total value locked, like the, mm -hmm. the locked at the L kind of suggests that there's some some freezing going on. You know, it, it's 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 a spectrum. Like different um, DeFi applications might have different temperatures. So for example, um, you know, Uniswap might be 
you know, somewhere maybe close to the freezing point or, you know, just past the freezing point in the sense that the ether in, in Uniswap technically can be removed with a single transaction. And actually, if you want to sell ERC20 for ETH, you know, you can do that immediately. But what we've what we've observed kind of on a on a holistic standpoint is that um, the the collateral is is sticky, right? So mm -hmm. we, we did have things like the vampire attack uh, with with sushi swap, where liquidity would go from one place to another, but it still stayed within the realm of DEXs or the realm of DeFi. Um, if you look at you know total value locked on on DeFi pools, it just goes up up only. Um, and we so also yeah, that's, can talk that's... about the the metaphor of Maker DAO, right? So like Ether is collateral inside of Maker DAO, and in theory, you know Ether in, in Maker DAO is also just one transaction away from becoming liquid on the secondary markets. But as a when we look at a systems level perspective, Maker DAO has three over three billion dollars worth of Dai preventing that ether from becoming thought, right? So that ether in MakerDAO is stuck behind a $3 billion dye supply that is keeping that ether being used as a cold store of value. It's frozen in its place, right? And so in the ether in MakerDAO, it would be frozen ether, very cold ether, right? Not liquid, not available to the secondary market, and definitely not being burned because it's not being used as transaction money. It's just cold ether, frozen, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if you place your ether as collateral and you take a die loan, for example, to buy a car or to buy a house, right? You, your income is going to allow you to gradually repay that loan, but you know it might take a decade for you to repay your your maker loan. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, so if we're painting the holistic picture here, right? So we're almost looking at this whole spectrum of like temperature mapping to ether the asset. And on the far left side of the spectrum, we're, what we're talking about is um, ether. If we're, if we're thinking of ether as like, say, water, it's below zero degrees Celsius. So it is frozen, but there are degrees of how frozen it can be. And I'm guessing that you might say, uh, Justin, that like the, the far side, the, the coldest ether can actually get is when it's staked. Right, mm -hmm. as like sort of, it's not it's it's not slushy. It's not in this in between area. It's like deep freeze, very cold, locked inside of the staking contract, and maybe um, ether locked in DeFi might be a little right to that. So it might be like you know negative ten degrees Celsius mm -hmm. or so, and you know, getting close to the to the to the to the thawing point, something like that. So actually, you, you can go even more extreme than, than staking. So you could, for example, artificially put some sort of, of time lock on your ETH. You could say, I'm, I'm going to lock my ETH for 10 years. I'm going to create a smart contract that does that. That's kind of artificial and no one really does it. But in theory, you could do it. But there's something that does happen naturally. And that's the process of losing coins or accidentally sending them um, you know, to the zero address. So that's kind of zero degrees Kelvin, you know, you, <laughs> it's like ma maximum, um, you know, um, negative uh, temperature. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's, you, you've taken money and you've made it so cold that you've denatured money. It's no longer money, right? It's it, technically it's a balance somewhere, but it's no longer money It's denatured because it, you can't move it anymore. It's frozen um, forever. And you could say uh, the same thing, for example, for the, the parity um, multisig wallet. So there's this very famous bug uh, where there's basically over half a million ETH, which is provably at zero degrees Kelvin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and 
yeah, it's it's basically no longer money. And the, the interesting thing is that when you go at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have a very, very similar behavior because on the on the hot side of things, on the boiling temperatures, you're basically destroying ETH, you're vaporizing it um, and removing it from the supply. So you kind of have this the spectrum and it turns out that on, on, on each extremes, you have very similar behaviors. You're basically improving the monetary qualities of ether, right? Because on the, on the cold side of things, you're kind of taking li liquidity, like literally liquid liquidity, and you're, you're kind of freezing it and slowing it down. And on the other hand, you're kind of vaporizing it and, and having it leave the, the supply. Um, and this is kind of a, a geeky kind of uh, math analogy, but you know, I study mathematics, so I'll, I'll share it. So when you do projective geometry, you know, you have you have a line that goes negative infinity, you know, all the way to on on that side and that side, and you introduce this one point called the point at infinity, where basically these two lines meet at the point of infinity. So you can kind of like think of it mm -hmm. as a circle, and kind of the from a monetary um, standpoint. The, the two extremes are, are, are really um, the same place, the same place. And the interesting thing about um, Ethereum is that you can think of it as a machine to take this liquid money and push it to the extremes. On the one hand, you're incentivizing this liquid money to become frozen. And on the other hand, you have this other mechanism where you're incentivizing this liquid money to vaporize. And so these are two very strong kind of scarcity engines that will suck out all the liquidity mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in its liquid state. And, um, and by vaporize, uh, what you're talking about is essentially literally being burnt through EIP-1559. That's, that's it becoming vaporized, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is what I mean by vaporized. <laughs> <laughs> You Guys, Justin Drake today. brought his own sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> that okay. was the sound of Ether being vaporized in EIP-1559. Okay, right. so, so uh, go ahead, Justin. Yeah, post EIP-1559, every time you make a transaction, you should imagine this sound uh, in your head. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's one of three sound effects that we have on, on standby. And Stay I want to I want to make sure the listeners are... are uh, up to speed with why we're talking about this temperature metaphor, because we're about to go into Excel sheets and, and perhaps talk less about metaphors and talk more about numbers. But the metaphor is really, really useful in to, to hold in our brains as we model this thing out, both as a model with numbers, but also a model for understanding these, these things. And I think what we just finished on right there is a fantastic through line. We have, I, me, I'm picturing like a, a cylinder, like a test tube cylinder, and we have the hot water at the top and we have the frozen water at the bottom, and then the liquid water in the middle, right? And that composes like the Ethereum system as a whole, right? Boiling water up, up, up at the top, which is the ether being used as transaction fees. Uh, and then some of that being vaporized and, and leaving the system. And then also we have ether being deep, deep in deep, uh, deep freeze state, you know, in cryo at the very, very bottom, which is ETH locked in DeFi and ETH being staked. And the meta of the, the through line here is that currently in Ethereum, we have a very, very liquid center 
and it and there's not that much boiling off the top and there's not that much frozen at the bottom but that's what is all about to change when we introduce eip 1559 which really starts to turn on the boiler at the top and a lot of ether is being vaporized up at the top and we are also introducing staking which is freezing a lot of ether at the bottom of the cylinder by incentivizing ether to be uh, locked locked in the staking contract and then there's also something to talk about with being locked in DeFi. that's like the slushy ether the half half melted half not but what's really changing is that this liquid center where there is a what uh, justin you've called a fire hose of water being being added into the system which is ether issuance from proof of work is actually going to be constricted into perhaps a, just a much more modest garden hose and that liquid center is actually going to become much smaller in relationship to what is being boiled off the top and what is being frozen down at the bottom uh, and so this temperature frame of reference is we're going to come back to this throughout the rest of this episode as we talk about some of these numbers more explicit numbers as we model out ultrasound money um Justin, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, so I kind of want to highlight the three cash flows that mm. are, I think, important for this, this, this discussion. The first cash flow, you mentioned it, is issuance. So issuance is you have just new liquidity that comes out of, of the sky. And right now, it's a huge amount of issuance. It's like, as you said, it's this fire hose of of liquidity and you know the, the market has to bear with it it's like this huge amount of sell pressure it's costly to run proof of work you know one of the big innovations of proof of stake is what i call economic efficiency in the in the previous protocol we, we're reducing by let's say 10x the cost of of consensus so that's cash flow number one issuance cash flow number two is related to this this warm side this hot side of this the spectrum the burning it's it's uh, supply right so we have a new mechanism to reduce supply and this is kind of where uh, you know ultrasound money meme came from right because we have deflation um but you know really the the ultrasound money is a very holistic meme you know with strong fundamentals with many pillars you know the, this deflation aspect is you know just one of them uh, one which is easy to communicate in this kind of catchphrase, you know, if, if Bitcoin sound money, then if is ultrasound money. Um, so that's cash flow number two, supply. Cash flow number one was issuance. Now, um, cash flow number three is basically the if as collateral and like how much if will be drawn out from this liquid center and kind of frozen. And basically what we have here is um when <clears throat> when we have the merge the, the the transaction fees will be in two parts one of it one part will be burnt we've already talked about this but another part which is the tip is not burnt and that goes directly to the validators and so that will go that will increase the the staking apr and and that's basically going to increase the power of the freezer right we're going to go from minus five degrees to minus 10 degrees or i guess you know the the apr could be like the the, the degrees that you're targeting so we're going to set it let's say at minus 25 degrees right so that's a 25 percent apr and it's going to be so cold that it's going to like freeze like a lot of the neighboring uh, liquidity um so yeah, these are the, the, the three cash flows that we could highlight one by one. 
before we get uh, to all of that, so can, can we talk about the, the the part that we haven't talked about in depth uh, very much, which is sort of this this liquid piece right in the middle? So mm -hmm. we talked about the freeze side that is staked ETH, frozen ETH, ETH use and collateral. We talked about the burn side that is it being vaporized by EIP fifteen five nine, and of course uh, we use that analogy of new liquidity is coming into the system via issuance right now. And right now there's a lot of issuance, like 4.2% or something issuance annualized per year is coming into this, this squishy middle part. There's not a lot staked and there's nothing being burnt. So we don't have the engine and we don't have the, the, the deep freezer. Let's talk about this, this middle portion because, um, that's mostly what we mean when when uh, we, we talk about money, right? It's it's kind of liquid. It can be used as a store of value. It could be used as a medium of exchange. It can be used as a unit of account. It can actually be spent. Is there anything more we need to talk about in this in this liquid fa phase, or do we just need to hear the sound effect, Justin? You tell us. <laughs> yeah, I think the sound effect is very important. So let's go ahead. <laughs> This is the liquid so this, phase. Yes. So we have a hundred million ether roughly, which is in this liquid phase. Um, you know, if we remove the the three million ether, sorry, four million now in in the deposit contract and and uh, the ether locked in in in, in DeFi. So we have this one hundred million pool, which is which is slushing. And as you said, you know, ether is used as as money. It's used as money in the context of NFTs. Uh, it's used as money in the context of of trading. It's a unit of of liquidity, right? On Uniswap, like ninety five percent of the of the volume is this um, is is ETH pairs. Um, it's you know, and one of the interesting things is that um, you know the this this traditional um, power of being money is what Bitcoin has explored, right? So you can think of of Bitcoin as exploring this this range from from zero to hundred. And with Ethereum, we can really, you know, push the limits, um, as I mentioned. But um, yeah, the, the, within this, this this liquid phase, you know, we have all all the various use cases for Ethereum. But we have this this kind of uh, ex, uh, internality, this 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 externality, I guess, which is that that the, the issuance is this 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 necessary evil that we have to deal with and it, it's flooding us and we're, we're drowning in liquidity at the moment and this this issuance is is representing a huge amount of sell pressure you know we're talking tens of millions of dollars every day um, and so one of the things that uh, uh, one of one of the things for which we have a spreadsheet is is looking at the sell pressure and and how much it will be reduced and it, and we're talking billions of dollars of relief uh, from this the sell pressure. Okay, guys. So that's the metaphor going into the models and just quick recap and we'll do it with sounds. So right now, Justin, you said there's about a hundred million or so of the total supply of ETH. And I don't know the total supply of ETH off the top of my head, 115 million? 115 million, yes. yeah. Okay, let's mm -hmm. say 115 million total supply of ETH right now. A hundred million is liquid. What does that sound like? That's our 100 million ETH liquid, the vast majority of it, the bulk. Now, we're starting to get some ETH that's frozen. It's frozen in the staking contract. I'm going to say 6 million or so frozen in the staking contract. We also have some ETH frozen in DeFi, 4 million. 
uh, frozen in the ETH staking contract. Justin's correcting me. We have some ETH in DeFi as well. What does that sound like? <laughs> so you sort of imagine like the, the water becoming ice and I'm imagining that. I'm also imagining my childhood in the uh, in, in, in the cold winters of Canada, Justin, when I hear that. <laughs> All right. So and and we have not yet fired up the furnaces. We have not yet started to burn ETH. But remind us again, what's that gonna sound like when we start burning? Mm. Sizzle. Sizzling on the EIP fifteen five nine. Okay. All right. So that is the setup, guys. Um, let's di dive into the numbers. And there are four models that you've put out recently. And I think maybe, Justin, you could give us some context on um, why you created these, these models and, and how you came up with them. But uh, for, for, for those that are, that are watching and listening to this, I'm going quick, to quickly go over them uh, at a high level. Um, one, we're going to look at the ETH peak supply model. And you're claiming that ETH peak supply could be 120 million, no more than 121 million ETH ever created. We're 120 at one, million, not 121. 120 million. Yes. <laughs> I keep saying it's the, it's the Bitcoiner in me, Justin. 100, 120 million could be ETH peak supply right now at 115. So we're going to get into that model. That's model one. Model two is the road actually going backward in time, going back in terms of supply, the road back to 100 million. Because again, we're going, to start, we're going to start burning ETH and we might be able to reduce over the next decade 20% of the total supply of ETH. What's that burning sound again, Justin? Got to hear, got to hear that burn. Nice. Vaporizing. Going from vaporizing from 120 million uh, to 100 million. That's model two we'll get into. Model three is we'll get into the net buy pressure. So um, David was talking about we have issuance of about 4.2% that is feeding this, this fat middle. There's 100 million supply ETH with 4% issuance or so per year. That is getting great, greatly restricted. So we're going to talk about the implications of uh, sell pressure reduced in Ether on Ethereum by as much as 90%. That's model three. And the last model we're going to talk about is the incentive to for individuals and for people who own, own ETH to freeze their ETH. And that is a staking APY that is getting massively increased to possibly 25%. We'll talk about how that's even possible because it's not coming from issuance. It's coming from transaction fees. And this is the first time I've actually seen transaction fees added to the revenue cash flows that stakers receive. So we're going to go through those four models. Before we do, Justin, is there anything else? Like, why did you come up with these, these models in the first place? Tee these up for us. Right. Um... I mean, we, we, we've had, you know, these, these, these big structural changes with EIP-1559 coming and the merge coming, but I wanted to, 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 to quantify things. And I think the, the big story really of, of the, the last few months is that we have one kind of mega cash flow, which is the transaction fees. And that's the, the, the root of, of everything, really, um, because it, it unlocks, you know, the high APR when you're staking, it unlocks the, 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 the burn. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just wanted to, to see, okay, what, what, what were the numbers because no one w w was talking about it. So, you know, one, one number that I was, I was personally very surprised by was the 25% staking, um, APR. And, you know, we can talk about the, the consequences, um, there, I guess, um, 
you know, on, in terms of the of the supply, I, um, you know, in my original um, like little uh, graphic for which introduced uh, ultrasound money, um, I had this this projected kind of cap, very conservative cap at two to the twenty seven. And, you know, I just like powers of two because you don't have to bike shed too much, you know, like two to the 28 was clearly too high, two to the 26 was clearly too low, like two to the two 27 was the right kind of binary order of magnitude. But people were kind of confused, like, why did he choose two to the 27? It's not a good meme number. It's a bit too geeky. Um, so I was like, okay, let's try and refine this, you know, to the closest million. And it turns out we can, we can refine it to the closest 10 million. Um, and you know, um, my, like the spreadsheet kind of suggests that we will we will never hit 120 million. Um, we'll be able to peak under it, um, and then basically once we have the merge, the the, the total supply can 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 go down. Um, and then, like the, the reason why I, I created this this other spreadsheet, like the the road back down to 100 million ETH, is is because 100 million is a kind of a nice meme number. Um, and I was wondering, okay, is it is it actually feasible for us to start at 120 and then go back down to 100 million? And the answer is yes. You know, it might take a decade, it might take two decades, um, but uh, it is definitely possible to have the total supply go back down to 100. And 100 million kind of has a bit of historical significance because uh, Vitalik at some point, you know, had this this Reddit post where you know he was making projections around the difficulty bomb, and he said, you know, it's possible we'll we'll never hit 100 million. And then you know we crossed 100 million, and then all the all the Bitcoin maxis were like, haha, you know, you have no supply cap, infinite supply, blah blah blah. Um, well, it's possible it's kind of like the, the revenge of the 100 million where we're going <laughs> back <laughs> to 100 million. Um, and right. then the other thing that I actually that was the very the very first spreadsheet that I created was around the the it was actually in preparation for our previous podcast um so the the cell pressure right in the previous podcast i said that eip1559 and the merge combined is is going to be the equivalent in terms of reducing cell pressure of both the deposit contract and grayscale combined so 7.2 million eth annually right so it's uh, it's it's like a huge amount of, of relief in terms of cell pressure uh, that we're going to have from these two kind of economic innovations, sci-fi economics, the, the EIP-1559 and, and the merge. Okay, let's, let's dive into it now then, Justin. Um, this, of course, is the meme brought to life with, with numbers, with an actual model, a projection of supply and the economic implications, what would happen. Um, Let's go to the first model, which is a spreadsheet that people will find in the show notes. Of course, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll find this in the show notes on YouTube. This is a spreadsheet you put together for a model of ETH peak supply. And the claim in this spreadsheet is pretty simple. There may be never, there may never be more than 120 million ETH in existence ever. Uh, again, it's back to this diagram. We might hit a point where we go ultrasound. Uh, we grow ETH supply, and then it might bend back downward, and that point might be 120 million. Can you explain some of the variables behind this scenario and why 120 million is is kind of it's an estimate, of course, but it's almost a conservative estimate as well? Get into this for us. Absolutely. So, you know, the the way that you 
predict supply is, is, is quite easy. Like you, you look at the supply today and then you, um, you basically add the daily supply. And there's, there's various things that will influence the, 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 sorry, the daily issuance, I mean, that will influence the daily issuance. So right now, the daily issuance is, is composed of, of two, two things. Number one is the proof of work issuance, which is about 13,600. It's actually a little bit below that. So I've put 13,550. And then we have the, the daily proof of stake um, issuance, which is, I think, around 800 ETH per day. But um, I put a thousand ETH there in the in the best guess uh, because that's going to be the the average between now and and the merge. And then there's um, there's there's these key key dates that are um, right. So the key key date number one is when will EIP one five five nine be activated? Because from that point onwards, um, there's going to be a huge relief in sell pressure because um, part of the of the fees which will normally go to the miners and be converted into electricity and electricity bills and sold, you know, it's like a forcing, forcefully sold, economically forcefully sold, um, will now instead be, be burnt and, and, and not sold. Um, so right now, the current plan um, that was announced a few days ago by, by Tim and, 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 and the whole crew is um, 14th of July, 2021. Um, but of course, you know, we could slip, you know, we've slipped many times. And so, you know, the, my, my conservative, like my, my conservative, um, you know, date for EIP 1559 is, is the 14th of August, 2021. And the reason why I've put it there is because we actually have to hard fork. And the reason we have to hard fork is because there's this difficulty bomb, which will stretch the, 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 the block times. And so it's a necessity and, you know, um, at this point in time, the devs have extremely high confidence that, you know, EIP 1559 will go in this, in this fork coming up in, in, in London. So Justin, the variables that really drive the difference between what you're calling the best guess, the more leaning conservative guess and the conservative guess are the activation date for EIP 1559, which is targeted for July, but could stretch into August possibly, maybe likely not later. Um, also, the merge date, so that's the date at which proof of work goes away and proof of stake becomes the consensus engine for the entirety of uh, Ethereum. The, the proof of work issuance, um, that's going to not really an assumption. That's pretty like static. That's you know right. definitely baked in. Uh, mm -hmm. Daily average POS uh, proof of stake issuance that could vary some, but that feels pretty pretty secure as an assumption as well. Um, th this other one, average daily fee burn. So um, there there's kind of a range on that. On the conservative side, looks like there's an average fee burn of about three thousand per day, ETH per day. And right. on the best guess side, it's about six thousand. What are we burning per day right now? Is it closer to six thousand? Well, right now we're not, not burning. burning excuse me, not burning. In theory, in, right? I meant in, in transaction theory. fees. Yes. Right. So the 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 one hundred day and thirty day and even seven day moving average are twelve thousand ETH per day. Okay, and then the, the 365 day moving average, which is like the really conservative one, which spans a, a very a long stretch of time, is at uh, 7.5 uh, thousand ETH per day. 
but you know as i as i see it you know the 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 total amount of transaction fees per day is one of these metrics which is quite volatile but directionally it's it's up only um so um you know let's say 10,000 eth per day with a, with a 70% or let's say 60% um fee burn then that that that's how you would arrive at this at the 6 um 6,000 eth per day like the conservative one 3,000 eth per day i i just don't see how it could go below 3,000 eth per day given that we have you know 10,000 eth per day in transaction fees and, and there's no way you know the the the, the fee burn will be 30% and then, so Justin, based on these assumptions, we get right. a best guess case where we have about 118, call it million ETH in total supply, um, max total supply, right? Because at, 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 at this point in time, it's going to start bending down and we're going to start burning more than we're issuing, right? That's the best guess side of things. If you were a bit more conservative, we get to a number that's closer to 120 million ETH as the max supply. Absolutely, yeah. And the lean conservative is 119 million. So yeah, I'm expecting we'll peak between 118 million and 120 million. And as you said, from the point of the merge until kind of the foreseeable future, we will deflate very likely every single day the issuance, the, sorry, the supply will go down and down and down. And the reason is that proof of stake is so damn efficient, right? It, it, like you need very, very little issuance to to run to the the proof of stake. And so, like even a, a moderate amount of transaction fees will will more than compensate for for the issuance. Justin, so, Justin, it's your belief that after EIP one five five nine and the merge, that there's no way that we are not burning more ether than we are issuing. You have, you seem like you have complete confidence in that. Yeah, I'm going to say ninety nine percent confidence that uh, at the point of the merge we're going down, and I have high confidence, let's say ninety five percent confidence that for the years to come, you know, let's say ten years, we're going to be going down pretty much every single day. Justin, this block, is a massive yeah. um, narrative buster because I think a lot of people have heard the narrative that ETH supply is infinite, right? That um, it has no cap, right? What's the difference between those narratives and what you're, what you're showing in the model? Because I think people even hearing this are so used to hearing the narrative being told that like ETH is, ETH supply is infinite, ETH has no cap no no cap whatsoever uh, eth will continue to issue more and more into the future what's the difference between those narratives and what and 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 the model here because i think people are still who who are hearing this might still have a hard time um <laughs> i guess rationalizing the the difference here cuz this is not the narrative that is in mainstream like few know about this i like i'm not sure how many people have actually worked through the numbers and 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 um have a model like this in their mind, but not, it has to be not very many. So can you talk about that? Right. Um, so, right. I, I think given point in time, the EVE supply is finite and there's always been a constraint on issuance, right? It, at Genesis, it started at five EVE per block and we've gone nothing, you know, we've always respected that, that constraint. You know, we've we've gone down, you know, to three ether block and two ether block, but uh, you know, uh, we we've always been constrained from day one. Now, 
um, the, the, the claim that ETH has no cap is actually technically correct. And the reason is that in theory, if there was no fee burn and purely just issuance from proof of stake, we would just grow every single year. Now, it turns out that um, the, with, with proof of stake, you can cap, you can, you can, you can have a, a, a provable cap which which is um on under a, a million eth you know we the, the the plan right now is to basically um cap the reward beyond um to you know 33 and a half million eth stakes so beyond that point there won't be any more um supply and that represents roughly a a 1 million eth um issuance maximum per year but in practice, what's likely going to happen is that we're going to be burning significantly more than 1 million ETH per year, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, and so in practice, not only are we going to have a finite supply, which is de facto capped, it's not in, it's not in theory capped, but it's de facto capped, but it's, it's even better than a supply cap. It's a decreasing cap. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is where the the ultrasound, the ultra comes in. I think we get to what, what we get to do with this narrative, where you know many many Bitcoin maxis will come and say that Ether has no supply cap, but now with proof of stake and EIP one five five nine, we get to say, well, there there's no supply floor. Like it could just keep on going down. Like it could go in the opposite direction, and there's nothing to stop it from going <laughs> That's lower. Equally true, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> there's no supply floor. Fantastic. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go. Let's go to the second model here. So the first claim was there may never be more than 121, uh, <laughs> 120 million Ryan. ETH. Stop saying Ryan. that. Uh, 120 million ETH, and this is the model that that kind of shows it. Um, the second claim is, I think, equally interesting, uh, but is is also part of the first claim, in that the supply might be going down, and it might go down as low as 100 million in a relatively short period of time. So walk us through the model where we get to 100 million ETH supply, a decrease of like, you know, uh, 20 million from 120 million in 12 years time. Right, so I was asking myself, can we reach this meme number of 100 million ETH in supply? And basically there's three key, um, you know, parameters or assumptions that you need to set. The first one is how much ETH is being staked. And here you can take kind of the, the maximally conservative um, uh, approach, which is to say, we're gonna have the 33.5 million ETH, which is the, the maximum amount of ETH um, of, you know, in terms of, of, of issuing uh, rewards. The second uh, assumption is the, the daily uh, EVM fees in, in the long term. Right. So right now we're roughly order of magnitude, we're at 10,000 ETH per day in transaction fees. Now I mentioned, you know, there's good reasons to believe that um, the fees, uh, total fees is up only. By the way, when I say total fees, I don't mean the gas price, right? I mean the gas price multiplied by the number of transactions. So, you know, we can have our cake and eat it too, because we can have low gas price and lots of transactions with scalability and have this this high uh, daily um, EVM fees. And then there's this third parameter, which um, assumption, which will be removed once we have EIP 1559, um, which is what is the fee burn percentage? 
right? We're doing 10,000 ETH per day, roughly. How much of that is burnt? Is it 70%, 7,000 ETH per day? Is it more? Is it less? Um, and it turns out that it, it doesn't really matter too much. The ballpark is, is, is correct. If it's, if it's slightly more, it's, it's good because we're, we're deflating faster, we're reducing supply. Um, if it's slightly less, then that's also good because it means a higher staking APR um, for, for, the, for the validators, uh, which you know, means more, um, more ETH that gets frozen. So either way we win, um, kind of the, the, the really important number, I guess, is this, this, the, the daily EVM fees uh, long-term. And so like, if we plug in the numbers, you know, you're welcome to plug in your own numbers, but my best guess was we're gonna have 30 million ETH stake long-term. We're gonna have at least 10,000 ETH per day and we're gonna have a, a fee burn percentage of roughly 70%. And that gives us about 12, 12 years to kind of go down from 120 million ETH down back down to uh, 100 million. So basically to vaporize 20 million ETH, it will take 12 years. And this, this best guess of 10,000 ETH being burned per day, that's actually where we currently are in, in right now in EVM fees. And so not only is that what you're saying your best guess is, but like we've actually already checked that box in theory, according to current uh, Ethereum gas demand. Is that right? That is correct. Um, I mean, the, the, the gas market, as I said, can be quite volatile. You know, it depends on, on things like, um, you know, what is the activity happening on Ethereum? It, it depends on what the volatility is of the market. It also depends on, on competitors. You know, maybe some new blockchain project comes out, out there, which is so much better than Ethereum and all your users migrate away. Um, there's many different factors that will influence the, the gas market. Do you know what I find funny is even the critics of Ethereum at this point, a point of critique is never that um, ETH block space demand will go down. That's never a point of criticism at this point in Ethereum's life cycle. It was maybe 2016, 2017. No one will use DeFi. No one will use smart contracts. Ethereum is a solution in search of a problem. It's not anymore. In fact, their criticisms are the, the opposite. Gas fees are too high. And that's why uh, Ethereum will, will lose in the long run is, is kind of a narrative playing out. So even the critics you know, don't, don't claim that uh, block, block space demand is going down. Even, even they think uh, ETH gas demand is, go, is going up. But what, what this would mean in your best guess case, where we are reducing total supply by 20 million over 12 years, that's an annual supply rate decrease of negative 1.4%, right? So right now we're issuing 4.2%. Uh, if this best guess turns out to be true, what you're saying, Justin, is we'd have an annualized decrease of 1.4% in supply. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, that's about right. So every year, the supply would decrease by 1.4%, roughly. Even the most conservative, can we just maybe walk through through that? Even the most conservative side of things where fee, percent, fee burn percentage is, is lower, daily EVM fees are about half of what we're doing right now, and there's a lot of mm -hmm. ETH staked locked up even that we're still burning eth absolutely we're still deflationary even in like this super conservative scenario we're still burning um more we're still de issue. exactly right that's crazy okay 
All right, so that's the the second model is the road to 100 million ETH supply, and you can see how that works out. Fork these, put your own variables in, put your own estimates in. These are all available in the show notes if, if you'd like to view them and fork them and play with them. This next model I think is really interesting. You said you prepared this model, um, you know, after you were thinking through the Ultrasound Money podcast. This is a model called net cell pressure reduction, and the way I think about this model is right now we've got sell pressure coming from issuance and coming from transaction fees of about 8.1 million ETH per year. Uh, and what you're saying is that that pipe uh, is going to be reduced by a lot. It's going to be reduced post EIP 1559 post merge to about 950K uh, per year, ETH per year. I think that's if you take the daily and you sort of annualize that so that's like an 88% reduction. So another way to say this is, I think this model is claiming that there's about to be a cell pressure reduction of about 88%. Can you talk through this model with us? Right. So this goes back to you know proof of work being extremely inefficient economically. Um, and so here, um, we, we, we need to look at, at, at several things. Number one, we need to look at what is the issuance of proof of work versus proof of stake. And, um, you know, proof of work is, is fairly stable. It's 13.6 uh, thousand um, or 13.5 thousand um, ETH per, per day. And then for the proof of stake issuance, I'm, I'm assuming, let's say, um, so, so this, by the way, this, this was um, at merge, right? Um, the, right now we have about 4 million ETH staked and I'm kind of assuming, let's say 20 million ETH stake, which is very conservative. Like there's no way I don't think we'll be at 20 million ETH at the point of the merge. But let's assume conservatively that we're at 20 million ETH staked. Then the daily proof of stake issuance will be 2.1 thousand ETH. Now, one of the interesting, one of the things you need to look at is the, the profit margin of, of proof of work and proof of stake. For proof of work, you have a very small profit margin because almost all the ETH you have to, you're forced to sell economically to buy the hardware to buy the electricity. So let's say that you have a a ten percent um, profit margin, but actually after tax, right? You have this this income tax after which is about fifty percent. The the ten percent becomes five percent. So basically, ninety five percent of the ETH that you receive, you're forced to sell. Now, in proof of stake, you have a very different scenario where you don't have the electricity cost, you don't have the hardware cost, you only have the taxes. So your profit margin is 50% and you're only forced to sell the other 50%. And actually, I, I, on this point, I kind of want to correct one of the things that I said in my previous podcast. I said in, my previous, in the previous episode that proof of stake is not distributive, right? I was, uh, we were basically claiming that if all the rewards accrue to the, to the validators, to the stakers. But that's actually not correct because roughly half of your ETH that you receive as a validator, you're gonna have to pay an income tax. In most jurisdictions, you know, income tax is around 50%. And so you have this, this natural sell pressure, um, which is a, a distribution mechanism um, for, for proof of stake. Anyway, you plug in all the numbers and you also include um, the, the the fee burn, and you go from twenty two thousand ETH per day 
in cell pressure, which is an insane amount of cell pressure. We're talking, um, let's see, um, that 2.5 K ETH. That's, you know, that's about $50 million per day, which is insane of cell pressure. And we're going to reduce that down by roughly 10 X to 5 million ETH per day, which is much more reasonable. And so when you, when you, when you annualize this, um, it, it, it turns out that the, the, the cell pressure uh, reduction is the equivalent of the deposit contract, which is around 4 million ETH and grayscale holding the 3.2 million ETH combined. But that's not like a one-time reduction in cell pressure. It's every single year we're going to have, you know, the, the equivalent of, of 7.2 million ETH that is not sold on the market. So you can, if you want, you can think of it as buy pressure, 7.2 million ETH per year of buy pressure. That, that is insanely cool. And so just, just to reiterate, like re removing cell pressure is the same thing and at the end result of things as adding in new buy pressure is basically two sides of the same coin. And what Justin Drake is saying is that by removing the cell pressure of proof of work issuance, and then also also removing the cell pressure of EVM fees, fees paid to the, to the validators slash miners, what we are able to get out of that is the equivalent of both grayscale and the deposit contract every single year. And so this is a recyclable mechanism. We get, we get to generate an equivalent amount of buy pressure that grayscale puts in and also an equivalent amount of deposit demand that the beacon chain uh, staking contract also puts in. And we get to have this this year and next year and next year and next year and until until we until we perhaps even break through that 100 million like uh, ether supply floor you know there's no floor for ether supply <laughs> i guess uh going back to um the original analogy that that we were talking about uh david you you mm. mentioned sort of this this fire hose right. that is is feeding the center with the, the liquid portion of eth and it's just feeding it more and more eth uh, mm -hmm. every year, about 8.1 million ETH supply per year. Um, and that's being reduced by a massive amount. So that's being reduced to about 950K ETH per year. So there's just like a, an 80 to 90% reduction. We're moving from a fire hose, as you said, to a garden hose of liquidity mm -hmm. that is that is filling that that center part and the states of matter, that, that liquid part of ETH. Um, and to, to, to extrapolate on that as well, right? Like not only do we go from just a fire hose of ether issuance flooding this like metaphor of this like cylinder of various temperature and where this middle part is just getting injected with just uh, liquidity, like ether selling pressure. But on top of that, we have the top part of this metaphorical cylinder, which is now burning ether, right? It's vaporizing ether. And so that what is being liquid is being vaporized by EIP 1559. And we also have, um, and so, and, and so the liquidity is being, uh, dried up that way. And then also we have on the flip side of things, we have this incentive to stake through ether. And so while this middle, this middle section of lukewarm ether, it's very quickly getting vaporized or getting staked. And while it's also not getting resupplied by a bunch of new proof of work issuance, it's only getting resupplied by a very small trickle of proof of stake issuance. And this reminds me, this turns my, my, my brain to some sort of like kind of stock to flow analysis where uh, the 
the center part is the new issuance and it's becoming very, very low. And a lot of that, uh, the total ETH supply is either getting burnt or staked, right? Which is the stock. Uh, and so there's very little ether supply that's that's accessible and liquid, which is actually a, a security mechanism to Ethereum because not having too much ether on the secondary markets is a way to protect Ethereum from would-be attackers because there's not that much ether available to them to purchase on the secondary markets and attack. Um, Justin, did I say anything that tripped you up, or or did, did you like did you like that? That was amazing. That was that was fantastic. And one thing I'll mention is that in the stock to flow, flow becomes negative, right? Because we have more. <laughs> And so that kind of something mm -hmm. for the Bitcoiners to wrap around uh, in, in, the, in the current model. Right. Maybe Massive well. amount of net sell um, pressure is uh, reduced. Uh, this, is, this is crazy. So what are we talking about? A factor of, of 10 or so of mm -hmm. efficiency, net yep. sell price reduction? What's going to happen? <laughs> like when that happens, when EIP 1559 comes around, when the merge happens, all of this net sell pressure is reduced by 80, 90%. Like what happens? I Does wonder what could, what could happen. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. <laughs> Justin, we've got one last model to, um, to go through, and then we're going to talk about uh, a few other things. But before we do, Bankless Nation, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid DAI markets. Gemini just launched their Earn program, where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi, or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. 
You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. So Justin, I was just about to ask you how you get to a staking APR of 25% under your best guess scenario. Can you walk us through some of the variables here? Right. So we have three key variables here. Variable number one is how much ETH will they be staked when we merge? Because this 25% is at the point of merge, right? It will be, it will get opted away as more ETH comes in and stakes. But what I'm expecting roughly 6 million ETH staked when we merge. And the reason is because we're at 4 million right now. Coinbase is going to add another million. And then, you know, we're going to have maybe another million trickle through. Um, and what, what's happening is that right the the APY is is gradually reducing right. So right now we're at roughly you know seven point eight percent APR, um, but with six million ETH we're only at six point eight percent APR. So the incentives are you know going down as more ETH stakes comes in. Okay, se second uh, assumption is what are the daily EVM fees at merge? And I put ten k. You know, as I mentioned, we're above 10K on, on the on the seven day moving average, on the 30 day moving average, on the 100 day moving average, we're roughly at, you know, 12, 12K. So that, that seems, you know, relatively uh, safe, but you know, anything could, could happen, I guess. And then there's the fee burn percentage, which is one of the things I will be interesting to see when EIP 1559 comes in, uh, in, a, in a couple, in a few months. But yeah, I, I put it at 70%. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, w w one way to, to try and estimate it is to, to look at, uh, the, 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 the slow gas price, right? So the, 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 the base fee is meant to, to represent kind of the, the sustained, um, demand for the basal the, level of demand. Yeah. The basal level. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Um, and so you can use that and then you can just divide out. Um, so you, yeah, you can just take that, that gas price multiplied by 15 million gas, which is the current gas limit, and then div divide it out by the, 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 the total ETH received in fees, uh, in, in the blocks. And that will, that will be one way to, to estimate a lower bound on, on the fee burn. But of course it could be slightly greater than that because the, the slow uh, gas price might be too conservative. And so when, um, when people were previously discussing like the yields from, from staking, uh, they would, they would really point out just issuance and they didn't, they didn't really, people forgot to include the tip and people forgot to include MEV minor extract maximum extractable value. Right. And so when people are seeing this 25% APY, they're the and maybe they're getting like sticker shock almost of like how high like no one thought that staking rewards would be this high because everyone forgot to integrate really high gas fees and really high congestion right uh and so that that is it has been my takeaway is that like people not only did we not really understand the large implications of reducing issuance and burning fees but we also didn't understand the net effect of MEV maximum extractable value rewards being paid to ETH stakers and ETH stakers alone. But this uh, isn't so, this isn't MEV, is it David? This is just fee. Doesn't uh, include MEV. So is it, yeah, MEV is a is a very broad term and it includes mm -hmm. various things. 
um, one of the things that it includes is the what I call the, the native fee, which is the, the fee that's that's paid by specifying a gas price in the transaction. But mm -hmm. MEV is broader in the sense that there's different ways that you can get paid. For example, Flashbot, what they have is a, a, a bundle mechanism where it's basically a where the, they have a smart con they, they provide a, a gas price of, of zero GUI. Um, and instead, you have a, a side channel payment. And the side channel payment happens in the contract, which pays the block proposer, which right mm -hmm. now is the miner. So I guess what I'm saying is like, I think um, what, what you're saying, David, was is absolutely true. Um, but what I'm saying is, I think Justin's model only includes the protocol specific fee revenue as part of MEV. So if you wanted to include mm -hmm. all MEV, it would be even more than this. Is that correct, Justin? That is correct. Um, but fl flashbots have this um, dashboard, which is currently in beta, and I got the, the privilege to see it. And <laughs> from my understanding is that the, the incremental MEV, which is paid in these bundles, is only about 5% additional. Oh, so it's right now, at least, it's relatively small, but, you know, things could change. And, you know, this, this daily EVM fees, which is, you know, right now around 10K, that could go down, but... You, you're right, you need to take into account the possible increase in the, the fees that are paid through flashbots because those will go directly. This is pure tip um, that goes directly to the validators. There's no nothing is burnt really in the in the in the flashbots uh, fees. Earlier in the episode, uh, Justin, you, you talked about how like the staking ether is so cold that it freezes the ether proximate to it. And I think this is the time to revisit that metaphor. Can you can you walk us through that metaphor and how this has to do with this twenty five percent APY? Right. So twenty five percent is clearly you know insane and crazy, um, and it's it's not going to last long. It's going to be a, a a temporary thing. And so what's going to happen is that more ETH is going to come in and and stake. And so the question, the very natural question you might ask, is how much ETH is going to come in and stake? And, and get one way. To, and get frozen exactly. And one way to uh, to answer this is using a model. <laughs> and what you could uh, include as a parameter in your model is what is the the fair cost of money of ether? You know, what is the opportunity cost of of staking ether and, and as opposed to doing something else with your your ether? And then the other thing you need to to um, model is what is the the cost of staking other than the opportunity cost. So there's various other costs. So for example, there's the, the compute and bandwidth cost, but there's also the risk that you might get slashed. There's some sort of bug. There's also the, the risk that you go offline and you accumulate these, these offline penalties. My, my personal estimate for, for the, the, the cost of, of, of staking is roughly 1%. Okay. Um, I might be overestimated, I might be underestimated. That's for you to put in whatever you think is, is appropriate. And for the cost of money of the opportunity cost, I would put it roughly at 5%. So let's say a 6% you know, fair um, staking APR, anything over 6% will get arbed away. Now, if you go back to the second spreadsheet, the road to 100 million ETH, um, you'll see that even when you have uh, 30 million ETH staked in the in this best guess column number E, the the staking APR is actually above six percent. So if if I'm correct, you know that that six percent is kind of the 
the fair APR that, towards which uh, the market will converge, then we're, we're going to see tens of millions, you know, on the order of 30 million ETH staked. So if this road to 100 million comes true, you know, we're going to have roughly 100 million ETH. 30 million of it is going to be in deep cryogenic cold storage. We're going to have some amount locked in DeFi. I don't know. Like it could, right now it's 11 million ETH, but you know, that's been growing extremely fast. Maybe it could be 20 million, 30 million, 50 million. We don't know. Um, and then the rest, which is going to be probably like a, a minority is going to be the, this liquid uh, ETH, which will be you know, available to be sold on exchanges and used to, to fuel kind of the, this high velocity uh, uh, Ethereum economy. So returning again to the uh, to this the cylinder of ETH at varying temperatures metaphor, where ha we have very little new ether being added, the liquid new ether being added to the middle, and where we've gone from where we are now with four million ether locked in the staking contract, that staking that ether is so cold because it's receiving such a high APY from fees and and issuance that that four million ether is so cold that it's going to freeze perhaps up to 30 million more total total ether, right? And then we already have 11 million ether locked in DeFi, perhaps like that, that doubles over the next year to two to uh, 20 million. All of a sudden we have 50 million ether frozen, right? Either in DeFi or in the staking contract. And that's all but half, like a decent, not, not half, but 40% um, of the total supply of ether is frozen, right? Meanwhile, we have on the flip side of things, EIP 1559, EIP 1559, burning off a lot of that excess vaporware or va va uh, water vapor and then we have only a small modest garden hose of, of liquidity being trickled in via new proof of stake issuance and so that that is the complete final 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 like model of this like ether cylinder of varying temperatures that is exactly right so you've summarized it perfectly <laughs> and that is how we model ladies and gentlemen ultra sound money wow Wow, guys. All right, so that's, that's how you got to those numbers, Justin. Uh, there may never be more than 120 million ETH. We might, over the next 10 years, decrease that to 100 million ETH. Uh, cell pressure is going to get massively reduced, 80 to 90% with the efficiency of proof of stake. Uh, and then staking APY at the start of the merge could be as high as 25%. And then it will decrease from there as more ether is getting cryogenically frozen. Uh, that's what these models are showing us. Justin, let's maybe end with um, this. How soon could all of this happen? I think crypto is the the crypto markets and just you know crypto crypto natives in general are very used to living these like bull bust cycles and like these almost like these four year kind of repeating cycles and a lot of this maybe stems from bitcoin being a dom the dominant asset and there is a uh, halving every four years where bitcoin supply gets gets, gets cut in half uh, so every four years we sort of anticipate something new is going to happen a changing of the cycles but i think that eip 1559 and the merge are going to happen much more quickly at an accelerated rate, and maybe at a rate that you know the crypto industry uh, is not typically used to. So, how soon could all of this happen? I know we talked about it uh, a little bit, but there's this concept being floated around of the accelerated merge. 
what is this? How likely are we to hit the, the merge date and also the EIP 1559 date of July? Right. So let me talk about the, the accelerated merge and, and, and what it means. Basically, it, it, it means that um, we try to merge as soon as possible, but we have a proof of a, a, a MVP, minimal viable product. We remove all the bells and whistles that could slow down the merge. So we remove withdrawals from the beacon chain back to um, the EVM that, that can wait you know, a few more months for what we call the post-merge cleanup. We don't enable transfers internally to the beacon chain. So if you want to transfer some funds from one validator to another, well, you have to wait a little bit more until the post-merge cleanup because we really want to focus on this minimal merge. Um, and we don't do fancy stuff like statelessness. So statelessness is kind of a, a sustainability slash security feature, right? We, ha um, we have this, this, this massive state and with statelessness, the validators don't need to store the state, which is very nice. But at merge, we're going to be asking the ETH2 validators to run a full node, a full ETH1 node with all, all the state. Um, and like in terms of, 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 of timelines, we've really tried to accelerate things and that's for several reasons. Um, one reason, as you can see, is that the, 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 the cash flows are so large, the amounts of money are so extreme that um, one, this is bad for the environment, right? Because we're, we're just pumping so much carbon in, in, in the atmosphere to, to pay for the electricity bills, you know, on the order of $50 million per day. The other thing is that it's bad for the holders, the ape holders, right? We're getting, we have this, this fire hose of issuance, which is just drowning us in liquidity, which is putting a huge amount of sell pressure. Um, also, we have miners that have, you know, issued some some threats of violence, right? They've um, they've said, okay, let's let's try and 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 show that we're strong and powerful, that we can control the network by, uh, you know, amassing 50 percent of all the, the the hash rate in a single pool, um, and you know, honestly, I think the merge at this point is is kind of overdue, right? Like we're, we're we're six years in, right? Like the 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 concept of proof of stake has been there even before the genesis of Ethereum. That was part of the roadmap from day you know minus a hundred, um, and and really it's it, it it's it's overdue. I mean, I think this this the fact that it took us six years really shows how difficult it is to to change Ethereum and how you know robust and decentralized and how, how much due diligence we put in and how, how we want to do things properly as opposed to doing things fast. Um, but, you know, the, the beacon chain is now running with over $10 billion. Like, there's a lot at stake. It's been running essentially fine since Genesis. And I think if we were to merge, let's say, in, in December, the beacon chain would be a, a one year old. Um, so, you know, we'd, we'd have a, a lot of value at stake for a long period of time, that's quite a bit of, of you know, stress testing uh, before we um, uh, before we merge. So if you go to the 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 ETH peak supply spreadsheets, I actually have the best case lean conservative and conservative scenarios. So my my best guess is that we're going to merge the first of December, twenty twenty one. And now the reason I picked this date is because it's the first anniversary of the Beacon Chain, which was launched. Um, on the 1st of December 20, 2020. 
Um, but of course, you know, I, I kind of lean optimistic in general. So maybe, you know, like pe people are like generally in the, in the team, there's this, I'd say there's this rough consensus at this point that we want to merge as soon as possible and that 2021 is a good development target, but it's not, you know, an ultimatum. It's not um, something that we must deliver. We really want to focus on, on security first and foremost, because we don't want to put the whole Ethereum economy, hundreds of billions of dollars on a beacon chain, which is, which is not secure. And we don't, want to, we don't, don't want to risk all this value. So if we have to, we will delay, but because the merge is so minimal, it's so simple from a technical perspective. Um, as far as I know, no one uh, believes that the merge would come after Q1 2022. And so what, that's why I put my conservative uh, timeline at the 31st of March 2022 uh, for the merge. And Justin, this would be that accelerated merge. And then, of course, cleanup would need to occur afterwards, correct? Correct. Yep. Okay. And then the EIP 1559 date, um, that feels like it's pretty, pretty strong, pretty set. July 14th is looking like the very likely date, but your conservative guess on that was August uh, 2021. Right. So, you know, there's extremely high confidence from the person leading this effort that EIP 1559 will be part of London, like 99% plus confidence. It's happening. The, all the implementations are there. We have the test nets. It's, it's, it's already, you know, the EIP has been accepted. Um, like the real question is timing. And, but we're talking about weeks, that's the uncertainty period. And as I mentioned, we have this difficulty bomb, which is a forcing function. So we, we, we have to hard fork and we will hard fork with EIP 1559. The, the question is just, are we going to hard fork in July, August, and potentially in the extreme case, early September, but no later than September, 2021. So back to the acceleration that I was talking about when I, when I asked this question, I don't think the crypto market is used to this amount of um, issuance supply chain change in such an accelerated period of time. First of all, the amounts are massive, right? Going from like 4% to negative 1%. Like, and then also the, 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 the timeline is greatly accelerated. We're talking about nine months, maybe 12 months uh, under the, the, the more conservative scenario. So um, <laughs> I think that the, the, the crypto market, crypto investors, crypto people in general are going to have to get their heads wrapped around this accelerated uh, timeline and the ramifications and implications of what you just laid out. And, you know, thanks for putting the models together for us. I think David's got uh, one last piece he wants to cover and uh, then we'll let you go, Justin. And, and Ryan, you can uh, stop sharing your screen just to, to finish these uh, things off. Um, and, and Justin, I, I want to finish off with, again, another metaphor or kind of like uh, vantage point for viewing Ethereum and, and moving forward. And we've, you've talked about uh, mocks when it comes to ultrasound money. Like if we, if we were at Mach 1, Ether is supersonic and we are actually burning eat more Ether than we are issuing, but mocks can go up. Like we can hit Mach 2, which is twice the speed of sound. Or, or what, But what does that mean for Ether the asset? If, if Ether the asset hits Mach 2, what does that mean? Does that mean, is that actually an, ex, an explicit thing? Yeah, so Mach 1 means that the fee burn exactly matches the, um, the issuance. So we've, 
we, 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 we it's, it's like as if we had a, a cap, right? The, the, the supply would, would not increase. It would be very mm -hmm. similar economics to Bitcoin. Um, and we'd be like sound money if we reach Mac one, but if we reach Mac two, what that means is that the amount that we're burning is twice as much than the amount that we're issuing. Now, by the way, this is long-term Mac one, Mac two, mm -hmm. Mac three. If we were to look right now in the present day, it's more like Mac 10. And the reason it's so high is because there's very few, there's relatively little ETH that's being staked, only 4 million ETH. And so the, the proof of stake issuance is quite a bit lower. So this, this little um, diagram is actually assuming 20 million ETH, which is a far cry from the current 4, 4 million ETH. Um, so, you know, I tried to, to be conservative. But, you know, as you can see, you know, the 365 day moving average is at 7.5 thousand uh, ETH per day. And and the, the, the 300 day and the 100 day moving average are at Mach 4, which is 12,000 ETH per day. So this, these these data points at the top there, they're like acting like magnets, right, mm -hmm. for the 365 day uh, moving average. So we can expect that this moving average will keep on going up, cross Mach 3 and possibly even cross Mach 4. I think this metaphor will do a really good job of kind of explaining the differences between um, the Bitcoin strategy versus the Ethereum strategy. Because with with Bitcoin, we have the happenings, right? Is every four years, it's programmed into the into the protocol. It's a very ceremonious time for Bitcoiners. It's like it's just like the time of the happening. It's the time for all Bitcoiners get to come and celebrate the the happening of the supply making its way to the secondary market. But with Ethereum, I think we could have our own mocks, like, and we get to have Mach 2, Mach 3, Mach 4. And the difference is that with Bitcoin, it's programmed into the protocol, regardless of whether Bitcoin is ready for it or not. It is getting cut in half no matter what, regardless of whether the e economics stand up. And, and Bitcoin is very much hoping that because of the happening, it makes the economics stand up. But for better or for worse, the happening is happening. Is, is happening. With mocks, we, you, with Ethereum and going from Mach 1 to Mach 2, Mach 3, it's not programmed. It's not guaranteed. Ethereum has to earn it. Ethereum has to viably leveraging the, the just a native economy that's built on top of Ethereum. If it gets from Mach 1 to Mach 2 and then Mach 2 to Mach 3, it's because it earned it. It's because it made the economics work out like that. And so rather than having it programmed and imposed upon the system, uh, the mocketing or going from Mach 1 to Mach 2, Mach 3 gets to be a new cer a ceremonious time for Ethereum people when we don't know it's coming or not. And when we finally hit like Mach 17 or whatever, and we finally we get to rejoice in this new mocketing. mocketing I need, we need to figure out a better meme for this, but a new mock level where we, uh, we get to be pat ourselves on the back and be like, we earned this. Like we, we got this done. Like it, it came to us rather than it being imposed upon the protocol. It, Ethereum was ready to reach this new speed of, of ultrasound money. That's, and that's my takeaway that I, that I think is a nice juxtaposition. Absolutely. And I think this... Um... This kind of shows the potential of the, the ultrasound money meme. Like really the whole thing started as, as, as a joke, right? It was supersonic money from, from Vitalik. Um, and then it was upgraded from joke to meme with ultrasound, ultrasound one word. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, you know, we're, we're moving towards 
ultrasound money with a space in between as becoming reality, becoming fundamentals. And as you say, these fundamentals are going to age like fine wine, right? Because if this, this up only thesis is correct in terms of the, the total uh, transactions fees per day, this, this theme is just going to keep on maturing and maturing and maturing. Um, and actually, if you want to um, facilitate the, the, the maturing process, um, not only can you participate, of course, on, on Ethereum and be part of the economy and pay these transaction fees, but um, this is a small plug. I'm, I'm looking for a, a, a website designer, backend and frontend, uh, to help with the website ultrasound.money. Right. So I think there's a lot of potential there to show like really nice graphics of, you know, the daily burn and what Mac level we're at and et cetera, et cetera. Wow. That is a very prestigious position. Uh, I think whoever ends up landing the, uh, that job to, to help build out that website, that would be a pretty cool job to land for sure. Justin, thank you so much for spending time with us. This is number three. And, um, you know, wow, like you've just uh, given, a, give, given us so much in, in terms of understanding what's happening with the crypto economics of uh, this system we call Ethereum. And uh, we just really appreciate you, you spending the time to do this. Thank you so much for having me. It was great fun. Bankless listeners, in the show notes, there will be some action items for you. Um, and one of those is to review these models, the models that we went through with Justin. Super important, play with them yourselves. Uh, if you want to adjust the assumptions, go do that. Give us your feedback. Also, listen to the Ultrasound Money episode again. I've had a lot of bankless listeners tell us that they, they've had to listen to it not once, but twice or you know sometimes three or four times to fully digest and understand that episode. I think that's a uh, a key precursor episode to this one. And I'll, I'll just say that I think this is the most important thing happening in crypto right now. And it doesn't S get since enough- Since the beginning, as, in my opinion. Yeah, but like, especially right now, because it's going to happen mm -hmm. over the next nine to 12 months. It's going to happen so quickly. And Ethereum is the second largest crypto um, network uh, maybe moving into the first largest as a result of all of this. And people need to understand- ETH's monetary policy, ETH's issuance schedule, what's happening with ETH 2.0, the fee burn, the implications of that, the merge, the reduction of supply implications of that. And so we're trying to bring that information out to them. This is alpha. This is understanding. This is where Ethereum is going. So um, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning with us. As always, risks and disclaimers. Of course, ETH is risky. Crypto is risky. So are these DeFi systems. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Bye.